Hello, this is Dr. Paul Looney. Welcome again to Growing with God, Your Imperfect Parent. In this episode, we'll take a look at the second beatitude, Blessed are those who mourn. Join me as we look into the importance of feeling and dealing with our pain in order to grow in relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. Well, we're doing a series um, called Hi Daddy, Growing with God, Your Imperfect Parent, proposing that sometimes God doesn't show up just in the way we wish he would, and that that feels bad, but it is good. Um, that God really does relate to us in the way that optimally provides for our growth. And we, t- we did an overview about that. We talked about how God's um, uh, parenting gives us a chance to renegotiate the stages of development that we may have missed out on in our human parentage. Um, we, we all grew up in broken homes of some kind or another and, and fi- found frustration and failure a part of our experience. But when we, out of our brokenness, come to God, we get a chance to start again. Jesus tells us you can be born again. And that is profoundly good news. However... <laughs> It does create a necessity for us to engage some things that we typically want to avoid. We talked about how the first beatitude encourages us or invites us to embrace poverty of spirit. And we said that really what that is, is a sense of our powerlessness, our sense of our desperate need for God and for each other. And that when we come into recovery, when we come into these rooms, it's often fueled by a sense of desperate need a sense of powerlessness, that our lives have become unmanageable and that we can't control them. And we said in that, in that first beatitude that that's really the condition of a baby. When a baby comes through that birth canal and is launched onto the stage of human experience, there is an extreme sense of helplessness and poverty of spirit that causes the baby to cry out. And in crying out, he connects with mom and with others. And what we proposed is that that it's through our experience of poverty that we connect with God in our spiritual poverty, and then we connect with each other when we realize that we can't go it alone. And I, I think that, that one of the things that's so great about being here on Tuesday night is that you see people who come alive to that new experience with God, who have um, an experience of going from despair to hope, from powerlessness to a sense of being connected to a source of power. And um, we really do see people experience the kingdom of heaven coming home in their hearts and then getting on that journey of relating to God as their loving father. What happens for a lot of us, once we get past um, uh, uh, the hurdle of admitting our need, is that we really do find that there's a community of people that will embrace us, that God himself will um, reach out to us like a newborn baby when we cry out to him. When we come into recovery, a lot of times we feel vulnerable and exposed. We feel kind of naked, like a little baby. But when we make that decision to admit our powerlessness and to expose our nakedness, so to speak, we find that there's an embrace of those who love and accept us, who can understand where we're coming from, who refuse to judge us. And in that sense of acceptance, there's a great sense of relief. I don't know how many of you found the first time you decided to open up in group and really just spill the beans, how much you felt your burden lifted just by that quiet, respectful, 
attentive silence that met you from, with eyes that expressed the love of Jesus and his acceptance. That's a great thing. And it's something like what babies experience when they gaze into the mother's eyes and experience love and acceptance, tenderness, mercy, and a lack of judgment. In that, there's a calm reassurance. And we get reassurance from others. Hey, you can get through this. If God did it for me, he can do it for you. And we hear God himself speaking to our hearts. It's going to be okay. And we have that feeling that he is there for us and he's going to be there for us, that he loves us and will be faithful. And it gives us a sense of security so we can start the journey. We can connect with him in a way that maybe we've never connected before. And in that, there's great comfort. It's kind of a little bit like being Adam in the Garden of Eden, where he can be naked and unashamed, where he can walk with God. And many, for, many of us in that bonding phase, we really feel God is very near. He's very attentive. He's very responsive to us. And for some of us, we even uh, experience something that we call in recovery the pink cloud. We just feel like we're floating. You know, we're having relieved ourselves of a burden. We feel lighter than air. And we feel like, hey, I'm never going back to that. I don't even want to drink. I don't even want a drug. I don't even want to go back to that dysfunctional relationship. We feel um, in some way, rightly so, that we have been delivered. Um, just like that baby has been delivered from the birth canal, we've been delivered into a new plane of experience, and it feels really great. We have the, the, the assurance at that moment that God is there for us, and that He is all we need. And we're right, sort of. That's where we begin to sense that there is something beyond bonding that there's something beyond being held and nursed at the breast of um, a mom or the Almighty, that there comes a time when we don't get to stay a baby because the 12 steps are a journey. And you know what? Babies don't take many steps, do they? No, they don't. Babies don't step at all. We rejoice when a child is finally able to be put on his or her feet and they take that first step. And so once we admit our powerlessness, that once we realize that all we can do really is come to God like a baby, then we feel rightly that we are well on our way. But it's just the beginning. It turns out um, God wants, like every good parent, for us to grow. He loves it when we are helpless and dependent, but he wants us to be able to stand on our own two feet. And eventually he sets us down and he steps away. Now, I grew up in a, in a, in a um, religious tradition, um, and I don't know how many times I heard it preached from the pulpit, but the message was, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? In other words, if you don't feel like God is right there for you, it's your own damn fault. They didn't say it that way, but that's kind of the message, you know? Like, you know, hey, if, if you don't feel that closeness with God, like we were singing in that last song, then really you must be doing something wrong. It's really the message that Job got when he experienced a transition in his walk with God that went from great sense of blessing and nearness of God to a complete sense of abandonment and desolation. And I'm going to say that that book of Job, which is probably the oldest book written in the Bible, opens us to an, a truth that is very profound and very profoundly disturbing. And that is 
that even those God loves the most are not immune from suffering. Even when we try to do everything right, even when we come to him and lay it all at his feet, there comes a time when we have to realize that God is not showing up for me in the, wish, in the way I wish he would. We feel that that perfect attunement that we want, that perfect attachment or connection, that uninterrupted sense of bonding and boundless um, sense of God's blessing is suddenly gone. We feel turned on our heads. And we began to hear a word that we don't like to hear. It's a word that every toddler hears a lot. It's the word no. And if, you, if any of you have been parents, you know that not only does a toddler hear the word, he or she learns to say it too. A lot. <laughs> because the, the transition from, bond, from bonding to separation is all about boundaries. It's all about understanding the limits of my autonomy, understanding the limits of my ability to orchestrate my development. Now, God wants us to sign on for our development. He wants you to take responsibility for grabbing the bottle or, you know, crawling or pulling up or taking those first steps. But he also wants us to know that there are limits to our autonomy. There are limits to the way that he will be with us. And it's painful. Sometimes we feel like now that we're on God's path, he's sort of, we're sort of entitled to his blessing. Like, I know when I was out there doing my own thing, I'm going to experience pain. But now, God, I'm on your side, right? So I don't have to experience all that suffering. <clears throat> Wrong. In fact, what some of you have found is that when you were out there doing your own thing, when you were drinking and in great denial, when you were surfing the internet for porn or shopping, um, when you were fully given over to pleasing other people, you were pretty much in denial to the suffering that you were causing or experiencing. And ironically, once you're exposed and come to that place of powerlessness, then the, the, the walls come tumbling down and you experience consequences like never before. And it seems all wrong. Like, hey, I realize I should have been suffering back then when I was doing all that junk. But now, hey, I'm not doing that. Why am I experiencing consequences? And it's very hard to stomach. It's like, hey, what gives? We want to avoid pain. It turns out, though, that pain is what got most of us launched on a very destructive path. It turns out that pain is what caused us to reach out to something to find comfort and control apart from God. And it turns out that for us to set aside that thing that we turned to before opens us back up to our pain. When we stop drinking, smoking, lurking, you know, whatever it is we're doing, um, we are going to start feeling our pain, our emptiness, our loneliness, our, our lack of direction. We're going to start experiencing things that we've spent a lifetime avoiding. And some of us, we're masterful at keeping pain at bay, right? We experience things that we should have grieved, but because we had no help doing it well, we shut down. I was kind of a crybaby as, as a kid. Truthfully, um, I felt acutely when bad things happened to me, to other people, especially if there was injustice. 
I was appalled by it, and it hurt me deeply, and I would cry. Well, it didn't take too long being ridiculed and rejected and called a crybaby that I decided to stop crying. I decided to stuff the pain, to, to adopt a stiff upper lip and find ways to avoid my suffering. And I can tell you, I got good at it. I smiled all the time. If you asked me what made me angry, I would say, I don't get angry. I didn't cry except in some movies when good things happened, which was baffling to me. Um, but I stopped crying, and I felt so much better for a time. But it wasn't too long before God allowed me to see that that pain that I was avoiding was causing some things in me that were causing more distress. Anybody been there? The very things that we use to avoid our pain eventually lead to more pain. Me stuffing my, my feelings led to a lot of relational dysfunction, led to some sexual dysfunction, led to a lot of problems with pride and prejudice that I had to come to terms with because they were, they were killing me. When we engage um, mourning, we engage God's invitation to suffer. He wants us, ironically, to feel the grief of living in a fallen world. We're told that Jesus himself was a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. If there was anybody that ever walked this planet who could look around and see the vast difference between what ought to be and what is, what we were made for and what we were making of our lives, it was Jesus. Everywhere he looked, there was a source of great grief for him. And it was difficult. It was painful. And like all of us, he was probably tempted to do, do something to make it go away. But unlike us, he understood that the only place to go with pain is to our Father, to the one who made us, to pour out our grief to him, to be honest with him about how we're feeling. Many of us had parents who didn't want to hear our pain. I heard many times, you hush that crying or I'll give you something to cry about. It's not the end of the world. Go to your room until you can put a smile on your face. A lot of us had grief that was thwarted, that was circumvented, that was shut down because if we grew up in families that weren't comfortable with grief, they would be determined to put an end to it. And I can tell you, until you deal with grief in your own life, you're going to be no use to other people who are suffering. You'll be so uncomfortable in the presence of grief if you haven't done your own work that you will not be able to sit with those who suffer in a way that will demonstrate the presence of God for them. You won't even be able to sit with yourself. I worked with many people over the years as a psychiatrist who are terrified to be alone, who cannot stand silence, people who keep the radio on all the time or the television who are constantly act in act activity, constantly looking for ways to distract themselves from their own inner struggle. Can't even go to sleep without some noise to keep them from feeling whatever it is they're trying to hold it, hold at bay. And God wants to free us from that way of living. It turns out that grief is what keeps our hearts soft. It turns out that our tears moisten the soil, soil of our hearts to keep them from becoming hard and to allow new things to grow in the place of the things that have died. 
Mourning allows us to let go of what's past so that we can engage what is coming. To release what was was in order to invest again in what can be. It allows us to feel hurt without embracing self-pity. Grief allows us to feel disappointment without giving way to despair. It allows us to feel our anger without letting bitterness take root and allows us to feel rejection without withdrawing into self-protection. Can you feel betrayal without becoming cynical? Can you be wounded without ceasing to care? Grief is what allows us to go on. Grief is what allows us to gather ourselves up again and go the next mile, to take the next step. Mourning is what keeps us moving. And if you think of grief like a river, it is grief, it's mourning that keeps us going from one side where we're in pain to other side where we can experience a fresh beginning. And it's scary. Some of us feel if we, if we do more than dip our toes into that river of our suffering and our grief, that we'll be overwhelmed by it, that it'll take us under, that we won't be able to recover. But, the, but the, the invitation of Jesus in saying blessed are those who mourn is an invitation to take his hand and to walk through, to keep walking. Because no matter how deep it gets, no matter how dark it feels, if we keep going, we're going to find something good on the other side. There is a promise that those who mourn will experience comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And like a two-year-old tantruming, when we get it out, mom calls us near. The word that, that, that we translate comforted means to call near. And sometimes we feel so alone in our pain. Even with God, we feel like we are completely abandoned in our pain. Like Jesus on the cross, in his very moment of greatest suffering, he felt that God was not there for him. Like Job, when all of his children had been taken from him, everything he had was laid waste, he felt that God was not there for him. And I believe, and you can disagree with me if you want, but there are times when God waits for us to get it out. He waits for us to get beyond our pain back to a place of peace. He wants us to know that like the toddler, we can say mine, that we can re recognize that although there are many things that are not under our control, there are some things that we must not let anyone else control. And our peace is one of those things. At the, end of the, at, at the beginning of life, a mother will intervene when her child gets upset. If a child's getting agitated or anxious or crying out, a mother will intervene and bring that child back to a place of peace. But as the child matures, she'll wait a little bit longer before she intervenes to help out. But there comes a day, and it could be early, it could be late, that the child wakes up at night and is frightened or fretting, anxious or hungry or thirsty or whatever, and the mother makes a deliberate decision to wait, to let the child cry and then bring him or herself back to a place of peace. Why would a mother do that? It's because a mother wants a child to learn something about him or herself. While she's been strong for that child, she wants the child to internalize some of that strength so that they can learn something that psychologically we call self-soothing. It's great to be soothed by mommy. 
And it's great when God comes in to comfort us. But there comes a time when every mother and every good father wants a child to be able to bring him, him or herself back to a place of calm. It's not easy. It's something we struggle with. We like it when someone else will offer the breast or the bottle, will offer a warm embrace. But it's in those moments when we are alone with our pain that we find our strength. We find out who we are, and we find that we don't have to be dependent on an external intervention to bring us peace. Because that's what drives our addictions. We want something external that we can hold on to to bring us to peace within. And God will do everything in his power to thwart us in our attempt to go through life looking for something outside to calm us inside. Because he knows anything that we can control will ultimately control us. It's like those little rats in the laboratory experience, experiments. You know, if they can push a lever and get a little jolt of pleasure to their brain, they'll do it over and over and over again. The thing that they can control controls them. So they'll die just to get another fix. And God will not be controlled by us, nor will he control us. Imagine if every time you prayed, you got this little warm, fuzzy feeling. Now, I know sometimes when I pray, I do get a warm, fuzzy feeling. But I can tell you, I have a lot of times that I pray and I get nothing. There are a lot of times when I'm asking for something really powerfully good for myself or someone else, and I get nothing. There are times when I need desperately to feel God's presence and his peace, and it seems like I got nothing. What is a kid to do? It's in those moments we have to ask ourselves, is God still God? And is God still good? Can I comfort myself in the knowledge that God is still God and God is still good? Psychologically, at this stage of development, children learn something called object constancy. Strange word. Refers to the object of their love, which is their mommy, the source of all good for an infant or a toddler. Um, but um, it's, it's the ability to, to internalize a view of mommy as good even when mommy is scowling or angry or withholding that cookie that I so desperately want, right? It's the ability of a child to know that even when mom is punishing or disciplining, that mom is still good. That even when she leaves the child with a sitter or at the daycare or in his room to cry himself to sleep, that mom is still a loving presence who will yet come again. All of us are challenged in our walk of faith to come to believe that God can restore our lives to sanity. That's what the second step is all about. It's coming to believe that God can restore our lives to sanity. And it's not the pink cloud that, that causes us to believe. It's when we get set down in the valley of our pain that we have to ask ourselves, do I still believe that God can restore me to sanity. Even when he's not showing up for me in the way that I expect or wish or desire, can I still trust that he is God, that he is good? Because the only way I can really come to believe that God will restore me to sanity is when I cease believing in everything else. Because I can tell you, life with God 
is crazy difficult at times. And if you have another option for living a life of value, apart from embracing the cross and following Jesus, you probably ought to take it. If you can find somewhere else to get satisfaction and peace and joy, then probably should go there. But we have to come to a place like the, like the apostles in John 6, where many people were leaving Jesus. And Jesus turned to the handful of people that were still there, and he said, are you guys going too? And they turned to Jesus, and they said, where are we going to go? There's not another game in town. We know that only you have the words of life. Only you're all we have, and sometimes you're not enough, but we can't go anywhere else. Sometimes God will not be enough for you. Sometimes he will not show up in the way you wish he would. And it will cause you to experience great grief, great pain, great disappointment. But if you will stay with him as Job did, he will show up again. But it may take some time. Because it's not until we get all of it out that God's going to show up. Because he knows that we have to dig deep to find our strength. We have to dig deep. He wants us to stand on our own two feet. God could carry you everywhere, just like a mother could carry her child. But at some point, he wants you to stand on your own two feet. He wants you to run, run outside and skip rope or climb a tree and come back if you get skin your knee. But he wants you to grow up and be like him. Yes, he's the source of every good thing, but he wants to be not an external source. He wants to be an internal source. He wants to come to inhabit your heart so that you can talk yourself through those dark nights, so that you can bring comfort to your own soul by reminding yourself of who God is and how faithful you have found him. When we disappoint God, when we've fallen short, when we go and do our own thing and fall flat on our face, we learn of God, God's faithfulness. But it's in those moments when he does not show up for us that we get an opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness to him, to demonstrate that we have come to believe that God will restore our lives to sanity. Not today, maybe, not in my time or in my way, but yes, it is coming. Bible says weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We have the promise, if we mourn, we will be comforted. God will not be controlled. He will not be manipulated. And if our grieving is just to get him to give us our way like a tantruming two-year-old, it ain't going to work. God is not going to be your drug. He's not going to be your codependent partner. He is not going to be your sugar daddy. He will be the lover of your soul. He will be there for you. It turns out, that pain drives a lot of addiction and a lot of dysfunction. And as long as we are set on, on avoiding our pain, we are ripe for the picking. The enemy can always give you something to turn to to avoid your pain, whether it's opening the fridge or going online, making a purchase or calling up your, you know, somebody for a booty call or whatever it is, you can find some way to get a little fix that will make you feel better in the moment and if, you're, if your decision tonight is to avoid pain, you got more coming. That's all there is to it. Jesus says, come with me. 
follow me. Take up the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a point of pain. It's the point where we recognize that sometimes God uses suffering to bring redemption. And that when we choose to engage our suffering like Jesus did, letting it do its work in us. The Bible says Jesus was perfected by the things that he suffered. Imagine that. That suffering produces something of value in us. If we begin to believe that, we don't have to run from pain. We don't have to be controlled by it. We can take up our cross and follow him. He's delivered us from bondage. He's delivered us from Egypt. But in mourning, we find ourselves in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness because the old man has to die. We have to grieve what we've left behind. The things that gave us comfort are no longer there for us. And we may feel like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, we were better off before. At least there we had something we could cling to to give us some to fill our stomachs. We gave up everything we could control to embrace God, whom we cannot control. Did we make a mistake? Should we turn back? For the Israelites, going back was not an option. If you remember their story, God led them to the Red Sea, which parted so they could go through and then closed back. Going back was not an option. Some of you have gone there. You've gone through the Red Sea and you realize, I can never go back. Some of you, like Ken Tierling, know I can't ever go back there. I could, but I can't. There's only death back there. And once we close the door to that source of relief, we can move forward. We can begin to engage life with God. But part of that life with God is engaging the pain that we avoided through our dysfunction, through our addiction. The end of mourning is acceptance. When we really get to that place where we've let it all out, then we can accept that God is God and that he is good. It's what Job found at the end of Job. When, when it says the words of Job were ended, when he got it kind of cleaned out the bowl of his suffering, God showed up in a fresh way. God, Job had a powerful experience with God. And these 12 steps, these beatitudes are about engaging God in a fresh way. And if there's anything that I, that I really want you to hear tonight is that God meets us at our point of pain. We made lots of judgments when we were experiencing pain before. When I was called a crybaby, I decided I was not going to cry. When my brother rejected me, I decided I wasn't going to care. And when I came into, into a knowledge of Christ, I had, to, I had to let go of those judgments and face the pain that I had kept at bay for so long. Not a fun thing but it is so healing and so good. When you let God do surgery, you're gonna experience healing. When we come to the cross, we acknowledge that God, that our God can abandon the one he loves the most to pain, rejection, and death in order to work his salvation. What I want you to consider tonight is what it is that's, that you're using to avoid pain. What is it, what is it that you cling to to um, keep you from feeling your despair, your loss, to keep you from feeling um, that pain that you don't want to face, the anxiety, the rejection, self-doubt, whatever it is, what is it that you're holding in your hand that you need to let go of to, to embrace the cross? 
Um, some of you have, uh, little, you have little cards. I would encourage you to write down anything that comes to mind, anything that you know that you turn to when you need to be turning to God. Anything that you turn to when you're restless or dismayed, when you're dejected or depressed, when you're anxious or aggravated, when you're angry or embittered, when you feel a sense of emptiness or loneliness or heartache, where do you go? Some of you know right away. You put a chaw of tobacco in your lip. You take a drag on a cigarette or a joint. Um, you do all kinds of things. Maybe sometimes you just go online and endlessly search for something or turn on the television. There are things that we do that are not bad in themselves, but they are bad when they keep us from engaging God in our pain. Because ironically, the things that drive our addictions can drive us to God if we set aside what's, what's keeping uh, the pain at bay. The pain is not the problem. Death is not to be feared. It is the way to new life. And that's what this beatitude is all about. We're going to put on a little song um, that talks about deciding to take the cross, to follow Jesus. And, and I'm going to just ask you to imagine that there's a line in the sand. Um, we're, we're not on the beach, but if we're on the beach, I'll draw a line here in the sand. And um, I'm going to suggest that some of you need to lay down what you're holding on to. Some of you just have, a, have something that in your, it's in your back pocket that you think, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go back to X or Y or Z. I can do that. Whether it's suicide or pills, whether it's sex or shopping, um, you've got something in your back pocket you can turn to if things get bad enough. And I'm just going to ask you to take that out of your back pocket. Write it down. Um, uh, if you don't have a pen, just imagine it on that piece of paper. And if you're willing to step across the line tonight to lay it down and to say, I want to put my hand to the plow. I don't want to look back. I don't want to turn back to that old thing that gave me soothing from my suffering. I want to let my Savior be the one who provides me with the only assurance I'm going I'm to have. I'm going to cling to my belief in God that when, even when I'm on the cross like Jesus was, feeling abandoned and confused, feeling heartache and rejection, that I'm going to say, my life is still yours, God. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Let's pray. The song's going to play. Um, would those turn the lights down? Um, and if y'all want to come up while the song's playing and just lay those things down, um, I invite you to do that. God, tonight, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the assurance that Jesus gives us that we will be blessed if we grieve, if we mourn, if we engage our pain in a way that honors you that we will find you drawing us near, drawing us near to you when we get it all out, when we, when we declare that we will not turn back no matter what. So God, we just draw this line in the sand tonight. Lord, if there's anybody here that needs to lay something down, to let go of something they're clinging to, and to take up their cross and follow you, Lord, inspire them to do it as the song plays. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.